Morning. I remember the first time I ever bought a car myself. I found it. I did the research. This was all on my own. It was an amazing feeling, one of pride, one of self-sufficiency, one of masculinity. It felt great. It was a 1993 Nissan Altima, and the seat belts were automatic. This amazing little black cruiser. And those feelings lasted, that feeling of uh, success and freedom, until I realized that there was something unique to the car that I hadn't seen before. There was this little lever in the center of the console. And the rumor was that I had to use that lever to make the car go. Now, this was new knowledge to me that I didn't previously have. And I had to be taught to learn how to drive a stick shift. Thank you, Paul Hagen. Now, I learned it, but there were three parts that I remembered needing to drive a stick shift. There was the gas and the brake. There was the clutch, and there's the stick. Now, I love driving stick because it gives you the feeling of the car is working. Uh, the pieces are moving in congruency. To coin the phrase, it's a well-oiled machine, meaning that it's working the way that it's intended to. And unless it's an automatic car, you can't drive a manual without the clutch to connect and disconnect the shafts. You can't change gears without the stick and if the gas and the brake aren't working, you're either going nowhere fast or you're not going anywhere at all. You need all three pieces. And this morning, we're going to continue looking at 1 Thessalonians as we're looking at the heart of the Apostle Paul. He also notes three pieces that uh, I think are crucial for living out our faith and that I believe that God would have us apply not only to our lives, but also to our ministry here at Terrell Road Bible Chapel. So let's open up in a word of prayer. And real quick, the reason that we open up in a word of prayer is to remind ourselves that God is with us, and it's also to position ourselves in this equation of God and man, that we need him. Anything that's said, anything that's thought, anything derived from the next 30 or so minutes is going to be because he's working and he's moving. doesn't matter how charismatic the speaker is, how great the music is, this is because God is moving. So... With that in mind, let's open up in a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would give us revelation this morning, revelation about your heart for ours, and how you would have us function. James chapter 1 tells us that if anyone needs wisdom, let him ask. And so, Lord, we ask for wisdom this morning on how you would have us to live in this world. In your name, amen. When I write a long email or a letter... It would be pretty silly for me to, halfway through the pages, break up my thought and my flow and give them chapter headings. It would be a little silly, especially if it's in the middle of a thought. But sometimes the Bible does that. And the reason that we chapter and versify the Bible is due to Archbishop Stephen Langton in 1244 AD. He categorized the Bible so that it would have more of a study feel for study, chapters, references, all of that. And you can research more about that, how it was done and why. It's quite interesting. And while there's a chapter break from 1 Thessalonians 1 to 2, the thought actually carries over. 
Paul's writing the Thessalonian church and he's commending them for their faith and becoming an example to the surrounding believers, like we heard from Kevin last week, leading by example. Now, Paul's reminding the Thessalonians how he himself was treated in Philippi, how they've been entrusted with the gospel, and how they are so burdened to share it with the nations. And while he's sharing his heart with the believers for this church, he lays out what I think is a three-part process for godly living, being an example, and in essence, evangelism, which sometimes we forget when we just run out the door to witness. I think sometimes we miss this three-part process in our spiritual conduct. Sometimes we miss it in our ministry. Sometimes we miss it in our family life. Now, each, th- each of these three are not prescriptive in their execution, meaning this isn't specific. But I believe they are frameworks for us to, to build our life around. And the three-part process Paul lays out, I've labeled like this. Mom, dad, child. Easy for you to remember. That's the title of the message. Mom, dad, child. And we're going to see how this plays out in our living and extension, our sharing of the gospel in our lives. So if you're open to 1 Thessalonians, turn to chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 6. It says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. There's so much going on in this first part, so let's break it down a little bit. This is the mom part of the process. Rudyard Kipling, who wrote The Jungle Book, is quoted by saying this, an ounce of mother is worth a pound of clergy. And it is impossible, I think, to exaggerate the influence a mother has in her children's lives. I watch Elena with Nora all the time, and it's not that I'm not loving. It's not that I'm not tender. It's not that I'm not provisional for her. I do all of those things, but it's not like mom. And 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 7 captures this beautiful picture of a young mother nursing her newborn. She knows that the little one can't eat on its own can't find food on its own, can't survive without her. Not only must she feed him, but the food must come from her own body. To nourish him, she must give of herself. And in verse 8, Paul continues to describe the extent of a mother's love. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Mothers make a deep investment one of emotion, one of care, one of compassion. And we in our walks with Jesus need to have a mom approach to how we live out our faith. One that tenderly cares for those around us, one that makes a deep investment, one that shares not only the gospel, but our lives. Quick checklist, how are we doing on that? Do you invite your neighbors over or do you wave if and when you see them? Do we just walk by the homeless? Is it easier to comment something on social media than actually call up that person and say, hey, I notice you're struggling, how can I help you? It's about engaging. It's about investing. There needs to be a gentle affection that comes from us as believers, but sadly, Christians are known more for what they are against than what they are for. 
I polled a group of friends, Christian and non-Christian, and I asked them this question. Just answer. What are Christians known for? Here's your top. Hypocrisy. Bumper stickers. Crusades. Trump. Being judgmental and self-righteous. Private education. Fear of engaging in a messy culture. No one said gentleness. No one said love. No one said tenderness. So either let's stop singing, they'll know we're Christians by our love, or let's start doing it. There needs to be a gentleness, a desire from within us, and for the world that not only reflects the gospel that we profess, but also the love that we say we have, and the, and the truth that we've been changed by. Like If this is real, then it should be demonstrated. We need that mom approach. The second part of the three-part process is the dad. Let's continue reading. Jump down to verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. We proclaimed while we proclaimed the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. When you think of mothers and fathers, you note obvious differences. But if you look at the main distinctions, mothers focus on their children's security and safety, while fathers focus on their children's success. A mother's concerned about tender, loving care, while a father pushes his children because he knows that we live in a world where success is difficult and failure is easy. But one isn't better than the other. Both are absolutely necessary. And Paul's words here in verses 11 and 12 share this idea that there needs to be a fatherly aspect to our walk. He says exhorting, which means to urge or warn. He uses the word encourage, meaning to come alongside someone who's struggling. He closes the thought with charged you, meaning challenge. Some of you know my story, knowing me from a a younger age, but for those of you who don't, my dad treated me very differently than he treated my sisters. He was a strict, tough guy. He expected a lot, and he set the bar pretty high because he knew that I would rise to it. And I've called my dad many times since being in the workforce, since becoming a dad. We don't always see eye to eye on things, but I appreciate the discipline he instilled in me. Because it actually shaped me into the man that I am today. And I believe that there's an element of this that Paul is expressing as he writes the Thessalonians. He says, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God and the calling that you have. And we too as believers need to be urging each other on, encouraging each other, challenging each other. I'll give you an example. The pastor at the church that I worked at would do this thing from this book called The One Minute Manager where he would catch us doing something good. If we had run a successful event, if he had gotten feedback from the congregation about something we did, or he just noticed that we were doing something well, he would recognize it, calling it catching us doing something good. And I asked him about it one time. I said, why do you do this? He said, because bosses more easily find fault in their employees than celebrate their victory. And isn't the church just like that? Don't we very easily point out the things that we don't like, calling it preference, 
calling it correction. But we don't very quickly celebrate the good thing that's going on, the, the growth that's happening, the spiritual depth that's occurring here. You see, complaining is easy. Encouraging is hard. Complaining says, here's the problem, you go fix it for me. Encouraging says, here's the opportunity, let's fix this together. I think our churches, not just Terrell Road, but just churches in general, have far too long entertained encouragement that's disguised as complaining. It's not the same thing. I've heard it, you've heard it too. I'd like to encourage you by telling you everything you said was wrong. I'd like to encourage you to think about the way we used to do things. A recent one to me was, uh, I want to encourage you by reminding you of this verse that tells you how everything you just said was incorrect. Most of the time, it's not encouragement. It's complaining about preference. I've heard it said, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. Be the change. Be the encouragement. Okay, then you ask, well, how do I know if I'm complaining or if I'm encouraging? Here's how you know. Complaining is done without dialogue and zero solution. Encouraging is done exclusively through dialogue, offering solution. Encouragement is a conversation usually. It's time spent with someone to understand their perspective, gain insight, build a relationship. It's personal. It's the diner meeting. It's going out for coffee. It's investing in someone, offering a better future. But complaining is done anonymously. There's no risk. It's just comment here. It's an email there. It's a complaint. You're never satisfied, and you're not even offering a solution. So Terrell Road, don't complain about this place. Don't complain about each other. Don't complain about the ministries, and don't complain about the leadership. Encourage each other. Spur each other on. Urge each other. Challenge each other. Like a father does with his children. Let's be part of the solution, not the problem. The last part of this three-part process is the child. Jump down to verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Children are fascinating little aliens. I think it was the first time Nora started walking, I realized that every bit of knowledge, or most of the bit of knowledge that she gains, she's going to get from me, which is a terrifying thought. But when I tell her something, for example, the oven is hot, she takes it at face value. She believes me because I've been around longer, I'm more experienced. She has to take by faith that I know what I'm talking about, and that my word is based on truth, there is a simplicity in her belief. And I believe that if we're not paying attention, there comes a point where we can lose that childlike wonder in our faith, where we grow old, and we forget the awe and the beauty, the simplicity and the fascination of a relationship with Christ. We become cold and calloused and and we're turned off to the colors of faith, the brilliance of belief, the mystery of this relationship with the master. And what Paul's saying here is that you didn't receive God because man told it to you. You didn't receive it because it made 100% logical sense. You believed it because it's the living, active word of God. 
for the last couple months, I've been really wrestling with what I believe and why. And I realize that I know very little about the faith I profess to believe. And so I started doing research. I looked into the Bible and its origins. Not just who wrote it, but how did it come together? How did we get this book? If you'd asked me previously, I probably would have said, well, Jesus sent it down after he ascended. And then we got it. Um, but no, there's, there's councils of Laodicea and Hippo and Carthage where men tirelessly worked to put this canon together. I listened to a lot of theologians, historians, professors, pastors who share different views than I do about things like the rapture, heaven and hell. Does God so love the world mean the entirety of humankind or just a select few? And about halfway through my research, I came to this realization. There comes a point where I just believe it. There has to be a faith element in my belief. I can't rationalize it. I can't explain it. I'm not asked to. And that's okay. And I think that's what Paul is showing us here in Thessalonians, is that within our faith, there needs to be a childlike wonder and awe applied. Not a naivety, but a simple appreciation, a recognition that we don't have all the answers and that we receive the gospel by faith. Some have to have everything in their spiritual walks mapped out and explainable. Everything needs to be neatly wrapped and, and proved. But, you know, we don't do that in our food. Why do we ask that in our faith? You don't ask where the milk came from in your latte every day. You don't ask to meet the cow. You don't demand an explanation for the peppers in your Chipotle burrito. I doubt you require an explanation for the fish origin in your sushi. And unless your name is Alan Wilkes, I guarantee you don't read the agreement on the Mac. I'll ask him if he does. You just click agree. You don't understand what's happening with all of that, but you can't trust God for the few things that you don't understand? There's got to be a faith component. And we need that within our spiritual journey. A beautiful simplicity that says, I don't understand everything. I'm not supposed to. And that's fine. So we have these three pieces. We have the tenderness of the mom, the encouragement of the dad, and the faith of a child. If you put all three of these components together, you have a well-oiled machine. One that's grounded. One that's compassionate. One that's moving. And doesn't that sound like a faith you want to have? A faith that doesn't have to explain everything. One that loves and cares. And one that urges others to be the best that they can be. And the antithesis of this type of individual is someone that needs to prove and defend every aspect of their belief, someone that's callous and insensitive, and someone who complains about everything they see in Christianity that doesn't align with their personal flavor. Can you imagine what a person like that would look like? Maybe somebody like us? I think Paul's heart here that's coming out in this chapter is not only asking us to display love, compassion, spur each other on, and have a simple faith, but I think he's also asking for some self-examination. Have we overdone one of these areas? Is one of these out of balance with the other? Because like the example we opened up with, you can't just use the clutch exclusively in the car. You need the gas and brake. 
For example, when I first had the car and I had to get home, I was told, lovingly, by my father-in-law, you just got to get home. And so I drove from this parking lot all the way to Roselle Park in first gear. I didn't get there fast, but I got there. But it wasn't functioning the way it was supposed to. And just like the car, I think Paul lays these out and he says if you use them together, you'll actually move forward in your Christian walk. No longer are you going to be tripped up by people's opinions of you because you'll be too busy trying to figure out how to tenderly love them. If everyone's complaining about the latest thing to complain about and there's always going to be something, you're not tripped up with that because now you're trying to figure out how to encourage those same people. While everybody else is trying to defend creationism and fight evolution and prove that God's not dead, whatever their crusade is right now, you're going to be someone who deeply, com- deeply cares for the church. You're going to be someone who doesn't need to be a lawyer and defend everything, but you're just going to be a witness just showing what God's done in your life. This simple mom-dad-child approach allows us to be someone like Paul, whose heart was not just for spreading the gospel, but someone who cared so deeply for the church that he's unwilling to let it destroy itself. And each of these things applied in our walks not only allow us to individually move forward, but could you imagine if we were all doing that and as a church we were moving forward? Could you imagine how effective we would be in the world if we weren't complaining? if we were known by our fierce love to those around us, if we weren't characterized by the fact that our belief is bigger than our need to prove it, that would be a place I'd want to go. That'd be a movement I'd want to give my life to. That's what Paul's doing here in 1 Thessalonians 2, and I think that's what God's asking of us this morning. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we ask that we would be a people known by movement, a people in an active relationship with a God who directs our steps. As we see in this chapter, you're you're calling us to love, not apathy. You're calling us to encouragement and not complaining. You're calling us to belief and not bickering. God, we confess, we don't always get it right. We don't always do it well but we ask that you would continue to guide us into a deeper relationship with you and with each other, that the world would know that we are changed by you. In your name, amen.